0: So all right well uh today we are uh in the last part of Romans chapter 15 as i mentioned last week we're kind of we've been kind of having to break in the middle of some of Paul's thoughts uh so last week we were looking at uh uh basically i think verses 22 through 27 and uh uh or twenty six I should say, and uh today I'd like to pick it up with verse twenty seven which really is breaking into the thought, so we'll go a little bit back into twenty six uh yeah uh, uh yeah there's one right here uh yes there's uh, this blue one here, so does anybody else need one of these there you go. Did you get one? Okay. Alright. Okay. Um, so, let's read beginning in uh, uh, <coughs> let's begin reading in verse 22 and and read down through the end of the chapter and uh, then we'll review and go on. He says, For this reason I have often prevent been prevented from coming to you. He's talking about his strategy or his, uh, the, the, the way that, that he believed that God wanted him to be uh, reaching new places, places where Christ had not already been named. And, uh, and he'd been busy doing that. And so he says, for this reason, I have often been prevented in coming to you. But now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain... For I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Okay, well, uh, so uh, last week, uh, beginning there in verse 22, he talks, starts talking some about the reasons why he had not yet come to Rome and about his plans to do so. Uh, what do you remember were some of the things that we mentioned last week? He thought his job was going where Christ is up. Okay, Okay. and why not Rome? Why wouldn't Rome be included in that? Well, there were Christians already there. Okay. They were doing the work. He didn't need to start. Great, okay. There was a strong church there. There was a strong testimony already there. And so, Rome wasn't really high on Paul's priority list, except that he really wanted to visit them and have some fruit among them and be encouraged by them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. What else? We talked about his real reason for going to Rome was also so that they could take him and help him with ministry a little further on. Okay. Okay. And where is that further on? He wants to go to to Spain. Yes. Uh huh. He wants to go to Spain. And. uh I'm going to spill something there. I'm not careful. He wants to go to Spain. And we talked a little bit about Spain, how how Spain is really a different kind of place than anywhere he's been before. It's uh, it's a uh, it's really the first truly barbarian place. And when we use that term barbarian, we don't mean it in the sense that we all use it today. of A bunch of wild-eyed teenagers or something like that but barbarians were simply those who were not the greek speakers they were the people who who did not have a uh, the heavy influence of greek culture and greek language which was what was characteristic of everywhere that paul had been up to this point uh but he felt he and we saw that earlier in romans that he had an obligation he had a he had a responsibility he said both to the greeks and to the barbarians both those who are the greek culture and those who were not. So he really hasn't gotten yet in his ministry to the barbarians. And he wants to do that. He wants to get out to Spain and, and really explore some new territory. But he needs the help of the Romans. What, what kind of help? You mentioned, I think, prayer. Uh, what other kind of help could the Romans maybe provide as he would go on towards Spain? Material, whether it be money or transportation. Okay, okay. So some just logistical support. Uh, What else? Okay, there's a very strong possibility. He's hoping to recruit some to travel. And Paul always traveled with or uh, seems to always have traveled with helpers or companions. Uh, And so uh, it's very likely that he was hoping to recruit some some travelers, some companions or some uh, people to travel with him as he goes to Spain. And and I would think, and several commentators suggest this, that he's really hoping to get somebody who actually knows the language, because he's obviously now moving into an area where the language a language is spoken that he doesn't know. And so, in his, uh, it's very likely that he was hoping to recruit companions who could work as translators for him, so that uh, so that he could more easily communicate the gospel. Okay, so he's wanting to go to Spain, and that's really part of his. This is still part of his strategy of going to places where Christ has not yet been named. And so, uh, so he wants to go there. And his hope is that he can stop in Rome, uh, spend some time there, be refreshed there, preach the gospel there, see some fruit there, uh, and then be encouraged and helped on his way by them in these various ways. So that's his strategy. And that's what he's wanted to do. And he says he's wanted to do it for a long time. But he's been hindered from doing it. And back, back in chapter 1, he talked about the fact he'd been hindered from coming to Rome. And then here again, he talks about being hindered in being able to do this thing that he really longed to do. What was hindering him? What was keeping him from doing this? The Holy Spirit, because he keeps having other things that to... Okay okay good. When we when we read that that he was hindered it's very easy for us to think about all the other things that always got in Paul's way. Persecution, shipwreck, you know, robbers, you know, uh being beaten, uh you know, opposition from uh false believers and opposition from the Jews. You know, there are all these other things that Paul encountered that were often signs seemed to be obstacles to him in the things that he wanted to do. But the real thing As he says here in this passage, the real thing that was keeping him from going was the constraint that was on his life by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit said, there's a job here I want you to do. And I want you to make sure you get that job done. And so he he submits to uh, the will of God. He submits to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And he fulfills that responsibility first. And we talked about the fact that Whenever we choose to serve the Lord, we're always, we, by, just by the nature of our choice, we're precluding other ways of serving God. We can't, we can't do everything that needs to be done in the kingdom of God. We can only do the things that we choose to do. And hopefully, the things we choose to do are the things that God wants us to do, not the things that we want to do necessarily. Okay? And so Paul, because he had chosen to obey uh, the promptings of the Holy Spirit and how he ought to minister and how he ought to exercise his gift, because he had made those choices, he was hindered from doing something he really longed to do. Something would have been good to do, for that matter. Uh, something that would have been encouraging to other believers had he done them. But it just wasn't what God wanted at that time in Paul's life. And uh, and I think there's a great deal of instruction uh, and lessen application for us uh, in that principle so so he's been hindered and but now, finally, he's finally accomplished everything that that within the context of his strategy, if you want to call it that, within the context of his Ministry, he's accomplished everything. He's, he said, "I fully preached the gospel from Jerusalem roundabout all the way to Illyricum. so now he's on the threshold of Italy. He's on the threshold of being on, able to go on to Rome and then ultimately on to Spain. So now he's there, he's ready to go, but he's not going to go. Why not? You've got go to you go back to Jerusalem, okay? I've got, you know, as I put it last week, I've got a package I've got to deliver. You know, I've got, I've got some mail I've got to deliver, and I've got to take it back to Jerusalem. That's two thousand dangerous miles out of his way. You know, I mean, we we think of a 2,000 mile trip and before we get ready to take a 2,000 mile trip we ask people in the Sunday school class to pray for us and what we're thinking is I hope I don't have a flat tire run out of gas or maybe at worst case scenario have some kind of an accident and so we ask people to pray for us but we really have it pretty cushy compared to travel in Paul's day right? tremendous uh, tremendous degree of exertion tremendous degree of peril involved in traveling in the first century it was commonly done it was you know done by many people of course there was much uh, much uh, uh, travel between nations etc as is obvious but it was still a very perilous undertaking and Paul as much as he's now ready to go to Spain and Rome uh, and as much as he wants to go to Spain and Rome has this Thing that he has to do, clear back in Jerusalem. So he's going to go the opposite direction, two thousand miles round trip. Okay, and uh, and and he's going to do this in order to do what? What what does what he have to do back in Jerusalem? Okay, he's going to take an offering back to the what he said here in the verses we looked at last week to the poor. Among the saints in Jerusalem. Now, now, we really don't know for sure if the situation in Jerusalem was one in which the entire church was poor. Uh, or if it was a situation in which there were some poor and uh, there were some poor in the church and he was particularly focused on them. This really goes back to something that he tells us in another place was a promise that he made. During uh, at the end of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, I don't believe, as I recall, that it's mentioned in Acts 15, but he does mention it later in one of his epistles. That they had asked him, the elders there in Jerusalem, when when they finally resolved the issue uh, there about circumcision in Acts 15, and uh, and uh, sent Paul then blessed Paul and set him out on his ministry back out on his ministry to the Gentiles. They asked that he would remember the poor. In Jerusalem. Okay. And Paul said that that was something good. That he wanted to do. So this was really a promise that he made. During that council in Jerusalem. Between his second and third missionary journey. So on his third missionary journey. Everywhere he went. He was busy. Promoting. And and speaking about and Encouraging. This offering of. Uh, financial assistance. To the poor in Jerusalem. And. Uh, so, as I say, we don't know whether it was whether the, there was a factor of pretty much the whole church being poor or if it was only some poor. And we could think, well, if there were only some poor in Jerusalem and there were others who were well off, why aren't they helping the poor in Jerusalem? And I think you'll find uh, maybe they were, but that's not the issue. As we discuss this offering today, we'll find out this offering was really about a whole lot more than charity. Was really about a whole lot more than simply meeting the needs of these poor people in Jerusalem. It was a profound, it had profound theological significance. So so he wants to bring this offering back to Jerusalem. Now, this particular offering that he's been collecting and I've been talking about is is probably one of the One of the things in the uh, early church that we in the 21st century, 20th and 21st century, discuss more than just about any other event in the early church. I honestly think I've heard more Bible studies and teaching about this offering and the implications of this offering and the lessons we learn from this offering than I've heard taught about Pentecost. I don't know about you. But I've, I've heard many a sermon about Second Corinthians chapter 8 and Corinthians chapter 9 and First Corinthians chapter 16. I've heard a lot of messages and a lot of sermons and a lot of Bible studies about this offering. And I really do think I've heard a lot more messages and sermons about this offering than I've heard about a lot of things that happened in the book of Acts, particularly uh, particularly uh, come to my mind, even Pentecost. And there are reasons for that, because this offering that Paul is taking and the exhortations he gives, particularly to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, provide us with a great deal of information, a great deal of instruction in the subject of finances and giving and that sort of thing. So we learn things in these passages, we learn things from this offering that's being collected from the Gentiles for the Jewish believers, Jewish poor back in Jerusalem, we learn things about setting aside on the first day of the week. We learn about the principle of those who have an abundance sharing with those who are in need. We learn about the idea of giving free will offering, that uh, that God loves a cheerful giver type of thing. Uh, uh, we, we just learn all kinds of important things about our money and about finances and and, and about giving and participating uh, we we understand we come to learn more about uh, how our giving is an expression of our gratitude for Christ who was rich became poor for our sake etc so there's a lot in this offering and in Paul's discussion about this offering with the Corinthian believers particularly that's Tremendous fodder for sermons and messages and Bible studies and things on this subject of giving. But what's interesting to me is that with all of the, all of the wealth of truth that's contained in this subject of the offering uh, for, the, for the poor in Jerusalem and the discussion of it in the New Testament, that I think oftentimes we miss some of the most profound truths that are wrapped up in this offering. For example, if this offering was merely, and I don't want to use the word merely in the sense that this means it was insignificant or unimportant, but if it was merely a charitable offering, Given for the poor, for the needy in Jerusalem. If that's all it was, if it was a matter of those who were in a place of of a little bit more comfortable place financially, helping those out who were really struggling financially, if that's all it was, then why was it necessary for the Apostle Paul, who has for now many years longed to go to Spain? and longed to visit Rome, and who is now right on the threshold of Italy, why is it necessary for him to set that longing aside one more time and travel 2,000 miles out of his way to Jerusalem to deliver that offering? Actually, in 1 Corinthians 16... When he's first discussing the offering uh, with the Corinthians and and talking about it in, uh, and it's not actually not the first time he's talked about it with them, but the first in the first time in one of his letters he talks about it with them, he actually says that he is he is planning to send the offering back to Jerusalem, and he tells the Corinthians he says I want you to pick some men. That you trust, that you that you can have confidence in with this kind of a task, and you appoint them. And he says, "Then I'll, then we'll send the money back with them to Jerusalem." And he says, "If it's uh, I forget exactly how he says it, but basically he says, if it's possible, I'll go with him." So initially, it wasn't even Paul's initial plan necessarily to be committed to go. He he would like to go. He would consider going. But he wasn't committed to it. But by the time we get to to, uh, just a short time later, maybe a year later or so, I don't know the exact timing. But by the time he writes Romans here, it's very clear. He's going to go to great, great expense of time and effort and great personal risk. Because he says in these verses we're looking at today, I want to finish this and I want to put my seal on it. That implies to me that this offering was just a whole lot more than a charitable gift, right? Because if it was just simply a charitable gift, then Paul could easily have just put the money in the hand of some trustworthy men and sent them on their way with the money and it would have accomplished its purpose. So as we contemplate this offering and as we contemplate Paul's attitude about the offering, we need to ask ourselves, what's going on here? Why is Paul so committed to this offering? Why is this offering so important to him? That he would travel, in first century travel, 2,000 miles by land and sea in order to personally deliver this offering. Okay. And I suggest to you that that does, in fact... Imply a really significant theological aspect to this offering and to what's going on here. Notice in verse 27, he says, uh, in verse 26, he said, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor, among the saints in Jerusalem. Actually, it included more than Macedonian cat. It also included, we, we discover from other passages, it included churches uh, from the Asia Minor area, from Ephesus and Derby and other places like that. So there were other churches, uh, uh, probably mentions Macedonia and here, because right now he, that's the region he's in as he's writing this letter. Uh, so that's foremost in his mind. But he says that they've been pleased to make this offering Uh, For the saints, but then in verse twenty-seven he says it again. He says, "Yes, they were pleased." So he emphasizes the fact that this offering was an offering that the churches were pleased to make. It's not something that they they did reluctantly. This goes back to things that we learn in Corinthians about the free will offering, the idea of God loving a cheerful giver, and that sort of thing. And and we discover that in fact. uh, they were very cheerful about it. Uh, we, learn about the, uh, uh, we learn about the Corinthians, for example, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9. We learn that the Corinthians, he says, were the first to desire and to pledge to do this. So the, it was uh, the Corinthian church that were the first ones to say, hey, we'd like to do this. We'd like to participate in this offering. And they actually apparently made a pledge. And he refers later to this pledge or this promise they made as a very generous pledge. So it appears that the church had possibly even set a number and said, you know, this is our goal. This is what we're going to shoot for. This is how much we want to give. OK, and over a period of time, they were going to collect this money. Uh, Paul was going to travel some other places and eventually then come back to Corinth and uh, But during that period of time, during that intervening period of time, uh, they would be collecting this offering. Hence, uh, Paul's instruction there in Corinthians about on the first day of the week you set aside. So he actually gives them a schedule to help them as they collect this money. But so we see with the Corinthians, they're very eager to to do this. They've made a pledge to do it and they've set a number. And according to Paul, it was a very generous pledge that the church in Corinth had made to say that they were going to do this. Concerning uh, the Macedonians, he says, he says about the Macedonians, he says, they begged us to participate. And you go, well, why would you need to beg somebody to participate in an offering? Well, uh, it becomes clear as you look a little bit further that the Macedonians were in no place to be making an offering, to be giving to an offering. They themselves, he said, were in abject poverty. And so it appears that Paul wanted to excuse them from making this, from being a part of this offering because they themselves were so poor. But the Philippians, he says, or or, excuse me, the Macedonians, which would include Philippi, the Macedonians begged them for the privilege. And then he says, when the time came, he says, they actually, he says, they, uh, they gave, he says, out of their deep poverty this also goes to show us that there's more going on here than simple charity. There's something more significant going on here because the Macedonians begged for the privilege in spite of their deep poverty, begged for the privilege of sharing in this offering. And ultimately gave out of their deep poverty Gave, and we don't know how much they gave, but whatever they gave, it was significant to Paul. And he said, he says, they not only gave their money, but they gave of themselves to us and to God. They gave even more than we expected. So the picture we get is uh, of these churches contributing to the offering is something they really wanted to do. And Paul emphasizes that. He says it twice, doesn't he? In verse. 26, he says, they were pleased to do it. And then in 27 he says, yes, they were pleased to do it. And he emphasizes the free will nature of it strongly because there's a corollary aspect in the next phrase when he says they were indebted to do it. You see that? He says, and they were indebted to them, he says, because... If the Gentiles have shared in their, the mean the Jews, spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. So on the one hand, we have this free will, this glad, I want to do it, please let me do it, aspect of the contribution of the churches in Macedonia and Achaia particularly. And on the other side, we have a sense of Duty an obligation. We owe it to them. Now he says, the Gentiles owe it to them because they have shared in their spiritual riches. Okay. Uh, specifically, of course, we think of what Paul says in another place when he says salvation is from the Jews. We know that God has worked through the Jews, through the descendant, through Abraham and through his descendants to bring salvation to the whole world. And the Jews have been the vehicle through which God has done that. And so we as Gentiles owe a debt of obligation. A debt of responsibility to the Jews. Because we have shared in the, in the salvation that came through the Jews. And not only that, but, but every church, every Gentile church founded, from day one, was founded as an as a result of the initial evangelistic outreach of the Jerusalem Church. Right? It's it's that that evangelistic mission of the Jerusalem Church that begins. And and clearly there was confusion, there was uncertainty about exactly how the Gentiles would fit in. But as I was thinking about this yesterday, I was thinking. Yeah, there was a lot of confusion about that. And there's a lot of argument about that. But after Peter's encounter with Cornelius, it doesn't seem there was ever a question of whether the Gentiles were included. It never seems like the question in the church is whether the Gentiles are included. The question was just what are the conditions under which the Gentiles are included. And so the Jewish... Church then was the was the beginning of the Christian mission that goes on today all over the world. OK, it all began back in Jerusalem. And so Paul says that we who are Gentiles, not including him, of course, because he's you, but you and I and all the Gentiles that we have a debt or we have an obligation, we have a responsibility to minister to them, he says in a material sense. Because we have reaped a spiritual harvest. Okay. Now. Just kind of as a sidelight. One thing that's interesting to me there is. is He says. Okay. You Gentile Christians. you, You shared in their spiritual things. So you have a debt to them in material things. Now. That can kind of grate against us a little bit because we think if somebody shared with us in spiritual things then we ought to share back to them in spiritual things. And I'm sure we should. (laughs) We could. But what's interesting to me is that Paul doesn't have this uh, platonic view of somehow the material world is profane. The material world is polluted. and, 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 And so we never associate it or connect it to the spiritual world. That's a that's a that's a, a a type of attitude that has actually permeated much of Christianity throughout its history. Uh, is this idea that the spiritual is good and the material is bad? Okay. And Paul doesn't see that dichotomy. He believes that when God created the world and finished creating the world, He looked on it and He said it's good. And the material world is good. Of course, it's been corrupted. It's been affected by sin, etc. But but there is no there's nothing profane there's nothing dirty about giving to someone who has who has let you share in their spiritual things there's nothing dirty or profane or low about sharing with them in material things okay and we see that throughout the scriptures don't we that principle goes throughout the scriptures that that if I have been blessed in a spiritual way, then I have a material obligation of a, a, a financial obligation, even to those who have blessed me in a spiritual way. And and that is uh, and that is the principle that Paul's working on. So he says they really desired they really wanted to do this. But there was also this sense of obligation and responsibility in that. That principle in itself also is woven throughout Scripture. You know, that's the whole idea of Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should oath. And then what did he say in verse 10? He says, And because of this we do good works. So so one of the reasons we as Christians attempt to live a holy life and a good life and love our neighbor and 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 uh, and uh, care for people and do one of the reasons we do that we don't do it in order to get salvation but we do it because we have a debt we owe (laughs) we were given something we were given this great gift of salvation and now I am forever obligated and indebted to God for this great gift of salvation. And I'll never be able to pay it back. But so I live my life then. Uh, I live a life of good works and you live a life of good works. Out of this, Not out of this sense that I do it in order to get salvation. But having received salvation, I go, well, I'm, I'm obligated. <laughs> I owe it to God. And I owe it to the people of God to live this kind of life. So that's what Paul is discussing there in verse 27. That's what he's referring to. Uh, And then he says in verse 28, he says, Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. And so so Paul now, although it was a little ambiguous at the first, you know, when he first was... Thinking about this, he thought, well, we might just send some guys with the offering. It became very clear to him by now that he needed to finish this. And he needed to put his seal, not God's seal, his seal on this offering. That meant that Paul had to go back to Jerusalem. So what's going on there? Why why does Paul feel this, this strong need to personally go back there and personally put his stamp of approval on this offering? His seal on this offering? Why does he need to finish it? Well, we need to remember that these verses that we're looking at here in Romans chapter 15 come right on the heels of Romans 14 and the first part of chapter 15, right? That there's been this lengthy discussion that Paul has made This lengthy uh, uh, teaching about the issue of the strong and the weak, right? There are these people who are the strong and they have this great sense of liberty and freedom. And they realize uh, that God has created all things for us to enjoy, etc., etc., etc. And then you have within the church, you have these who are weak in conscience. They have many scruples. They have... Days that they think need to be observed and they have certain things that they can't eat and certain things they can't drink uh, because they have these scruples and he considers he calls them to be the weak ones or the ones who are weak of faith or weak of conscience. And we talked all about that. It's not a derogatory term. It's just a descriptive term of them. OK, but we have the strong and the weak and who primarily constituted this group of the strong. pardon the Gentiles okay the Gentiles were the ones in Rome who primarily constituted this strong group not exclusively but primarily and so then who constituted the group of the weak the Jews okay it was what we well, might call the Jewish background believers either those who were Jews or those who had been Gentiles and converted to Judaism before subsequently being converted to Christianity so you have these. You have on one side you have the Gentiles, who constitute the strong, the ones who have this great sense of liberty, and on the other side you have the Jews, the Jewish Christians, and they have uh, they have uh, 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 scruples that are not necessarily ones that that God is concerned about, not ones that the ones that God's not particularly concerned about any longer. He's freed them from that. He's freed them from the law and from some of the implications of the law. Uh, so they're not particularly issues to God, but they are issues to these Jewish believers and they think that they're issues to God. And so Paul spends a great deal of time there in chapter 14 and the early part of 15 about talking about what are the attitudes that we're going to have towards one another when we have these differing different opinions in the church. And Paul's obvious concern, his overriding concern in Romans 14 and 15, is that whatever our differing opinions in the church, we learn to live with one another together in love, right? And so he, he warns the strong not to live in such a way that it hurts the weak. And he warns the weak not to be judging and condemning the strong because of their liberties. And so Paul has this obvious burden, this obvious heart to make sure that the Christian church does not split into two distinct factions. The Gentile strong and the Jewish weak. He wants to prevent that. And he argues strongly in chapter 14 and the early part of 15 to prevent that from happening. But that's not simply a problem in Rome. That's a problem with the entire church. That you have back in Jerusalem, you have these Jewish believers and they love God, etc., etc., and they're not really opposed to Gentiles coming in, but they really believe that these scruples need to be kept. And so there are a significant number of Jews back in Jerusalem who have serious suspicions about Paul and about what Paul is doing and about the churches that Paul is founding and they are alarmed that as he is doing this he is not telling them that they need to observe the sabbath or that they need to be circumcised etc 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 okay so they're very well, not all of them in Jerusalem certainly Paul had some very strong supporters in Jerusalem but there's a strong contingent in Jerusalem who are very concerned that's what the whole Jerusalem council was about And as far as the leaders were concerned, the Jerusalem council resolved the problem. But it becomes apparent later that there's still a significant contingent in Jerusalem who still struggle with this issue. And so here is Paul, a Jew who has spent a good part of his life in Jerusalem and and, and, and around these people and associating with these people and now God has saved him and called him and sent him out and, and telling him specifically he needs to go to the Gentiles and, and witness the Gentiles. And so here is Paul and he's caught between these two kind of impending factions. And he wants to ensure that the church doesn't just split but that it's brought together. And so, when the, when the elders, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, ask Paul to remember the poor, as Paul thinks about this, he goes, now this is a great opportunity, because this is a way that, that I can play a part in bringing the church together. And so what is particularly significant theologically about This offering of the Gentile churches to the Jews is it is this group within the church, the strong ones, who are acknowledging their debt, their spiritual debt to the weak ones. And it's the strong ones acknowledging their debt to the weak ones and saying, we really want to help you. We want to be a blessing to you. We want to share with you in your hour of need. What this offering is really about is the unity of the body of Christ. And that's why it's so important to Paul. It's not just charity. And again, I don't use that, <laughs> I don't say that in a in a in a demeaning sense. Charity is a glorious and wonderful thing. But, I, but I'm just trying to say it's, it's, it's about a whole lot more than charity. It's about the unity of the body of Christ. And I was thinking about that yesterday as I was thinking about this principle and thinking about how, how the offering is a recognition and acknowledgement of a debt on the part of the strong to the weak. And then I was thinking about my own life and my own experience. And I was thinking about how, if you were to describe my life and my growing up and my and and uh, and, and my experience as a as a young Christian, as a child and as a youth, uh, I grew up in I grew up in churches that I think probably would fall, if Paul were to classify them, would fall into category of the weak. I grew up in churches that were very uh, tended to be very legalistic. I grew up in churches that tended to be uh, very fundamentalist, sometimes in a good way and sometimes in a the, in the not so good way. Uh, you know, I grew up with all kinds of uh, strictures, all kinds of limitations on what I could do, what I could. You know, I, I can't honestly say that I chafed under those a lot, but that's just the context I grew up in. And as I grew and I kind of got away from that context and got into a more free environment, then I began to understand the liberty and the freedom I have in Christ. And I I feel a tremendous sense of liberty and freedom in Christ that, that I never knew when I was growing up. And as I was thinking about that yesterday, I was thinking, what a debt I owe to those people. Because as I look back on those early years of my life, those are the years that shaped me. They made me the man I am today. Not the legalism. Not the bondage. But all the other things that they built into my life. My love for God. My walk with Him. My love for the Word of God. Uh, Those are the... Those are the things I look back on and I think about how God used those people and those churches in rich and meaningful and powerful ways in my life. And I can think back on experiences I had with God that happened in that context. And I owe them a debt of gratitude, don't I? I owe them a debt. I don't agree with them. I'm free from some of that stuff now. But I owe him a tremendous debt of gratitude. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking I'm no expert on the whole issue of the emergent church. But but I have done some reading and some studying on the subject. And one of the things that strikes me about the emergent church is many of the young people, particularly and even people older than that, who have joined the emergent church and have kind of bought into the ideologies and the thoughts and the Philosophies of the emergent church are doing so in a reaction against the legalistic Christianity they grew up in, and so they've grown up in a they've grown up in a in in a in a very strict, very kind of what they understand now, as they look back on it, they describe it as a very legalistic experience, and so they're they're kind of wanting to throw it all out and start all over again. And what I learned from Romans 15 is that's a serious mistake. What, what's happened, I believe, in the emergent church is that in throwing it out, they have quite literally thrown the baby out with the bathwater. That's one of the mistakes we make when we react against some of those things. We go too far. And so I think there's tremendous value to me. It's a tremendous encouragement to me to think about what these churches are doing. Because what these churches are doing is you have the strong saying to the weak, we love you and we value and we cherish the contribution you have made in our lives. And I personally stand in that position. Someone who can say, I benefited and I grew and I became the Christian I am today because of those Christians back there in my life who didn't have it all together and who didn't understand some ideas, some principles of Christian freedom. But they loved God. And they wanted to honor God. And they wanted to build that into my life. I gave you that example last week of that silly... Little uh, contest. It wasn't silly, but that little contest thing we did, that example I gave you, that was just one example. And I can tell you about other experiences in that context where I was so close to God, so so aware that He was speaking to me and that He was working in my life and He was calling me. And so, I think as Christians, We need to be very careful about how dismissive we are of other Christians. And Paul knows that. And he realizes there's this mutuality. And so he's committed. He is determined to do whatever he can do to bring these two factions, uh, not factions yet, but these two groups closer together. And that's why Paul is willing to go 2,000 miles out of his way. To make sure that when that offering is received in Jerusalem, they understand the heart behind the offering. That they understand it's not just a little bit of money to help them pay the bills. That they understand there's a theological message here. The churches in Galatia and the churches in Macedonia and the churches in Achaia and the churches in Asia are saying to you, we love you and we thank you for what you have done for us. And Paul is insisting that he be there to put that seal on that and to stamp there. But there's great risk involved. <clears throat> so he says to them, he says, I want you to pray. Now, the Romans, they couldn't contribute to this offering because geographically they were out of reach. They, you know, there was no way for them to contribute to the offering. So they're really not a part of it, but they can be a part if they'll pray. And so Paul says, "I urge you to pray," and he asks them to pray specifically for two things. The first is that they not that he not or that he be rescued from the hands of disobedience. That is the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. He says, "I want you to pray that I'll be rescued from them." One commentator pointed out that from the time he wrote this. He faced three mob lynchings, uh, one potential flogging, and an assassination attempt. Oh, and by the there was a shipwreck thrown in after that, too. And so you go, well, did God answer his prayer? Well, yeah, God answered prayer. He was rescued out of all of those. So, we do know that 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 part of his prayer was answered. We don't know whether or not his prayer, that the gift would be proved acceptable by the saints in Jerusalem. We don't know. Commentators come down on both sides. Some say, well, yeah, we think it probably was accepted. And some other commentators uh, citing other evidence say, well, it kind of looks like they didn't accept it. And and I don't know. I don't know whether they accepted it or not. But whether or not it was ultimately accepted was not the issue to Paul. Paul says, you'll notice he says in verse 29, he says, I know when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And in verse 32, he says, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. To Paul, he's sitting there on the threshold of Rome and Spain and he says, I've got to go back to Jerusalem instead and I've got to deliver this package back in Jerusalem. I've got to put my seal. I've got to make sure they know why we're giving this offering. And he says, so when I come to you, I will come, he says, in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. It's interesting to me how many commentators missed the point. Paul knows that when he comes to Rome, he's going to come in the fullness of blessing of Christ because Paul knows he will have done what Christ wanted him to do, which was to place the unit the priority of the unity of the body of Christ where it ought to be placed, and that he would make great personal sacrifice and go to great personal risk for the sake of the oneness of the body of Christ. So He knows that if he goes back to Jerusalem and then finally succeeds in coming to Rome, that he will have the fullness of the blessing of Christ. What Paul is saying is, I'm not willing to take a shortcut. You know, I could send this on with somebody else. I could send it with somebody else and I could just go on to Spain and stop in Rome and enjoy your refreshing company. I could do all of that. But I wouldn't have that sense of the fullness of the blessing of Christ because I would have taken a shortcut. Because there's something that weighs heavy on the heart of Christ that He has placed on my heart. And if I ignore it, if I don't discharge that responsibility, then whatever else I do in the future, when I go on in the future, I'm not going to have that deep sense Of Christ's satisfaction with me and what I did. And I thought about that, I thought, how much we want that, don't we? Don't we want the fullness of the blessing of Christ on everything we do? If we do, then it's imperative that we not take shortcuts. That we not ignore it when He's saying to us, "This is on my heart for you to do." Not to take shortcuts, but to do what He asks us to do. So then we can go on, and so that when we go on and do things we'd rather do or things we've long to do, that we can do it with the full sense that Christ is fully pleased. It's a tremendous lesson here for us, isn't it? And Paul says, when I come, then he says, I will come, he says, enjoy and the will of God. And I will find refreshing rest in your company. So Paul says, when I come, having fully discharged all that God has asked me to do, then I can really fully enjoy your company. Then I can really enjoy your rest. And then he says in benediction, may the God of peace be with you. We could spend a lot of time on that. I ask this question simply, why does Paul pray that God would be with him? Isn't God with all believers? Isn't that what Christ said? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So why does Paul say, may the God of peace be with you? Well, I don't think what he's saying is You know, it may be that God won't be with you unless I pray that He is with you. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think what Paul is saying is may you really experience in your personal life the peace of God. Because God is a God of peace. Like I say, we could spend a long time talking about that, but we're out of time. Next week, we'll pick it up in chapter 16.